The planet Earth is in severe danger, and we are facing a global crisis. We must listen in this country and around the world to the scientists and the Green New Deal that the Congresswoman and I are fighting for is the only program out there that does that. Welcome to the Political Notebook Podcast. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. That voice you heard in the beginning was Bernie Sanders earlier this week standing in front of the Capitol with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. They were rallying with residents of public housing units in support of one part of their Green New Deal called the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act, a legislation which calls for sustainable retrofitting of public housing in America, uh, which they claim will reduce carbon emissions and also improve living conditions and, and create jobs for workers. This is in line with progressive perspective on climate change that sees the main problem causing climate change being unchecked capitalism and corporate power, and that those who will be most hurt by climate change uh, are the poor. Progressives are saying that climate and economy and politics are all interconnected. Therefore, we need to solve these problems simultaneously. And this issue is, I think, one of the most polarizing right now in American politics. A Pew Research earlier this year found that 67% of Democrats think climate change should be a top priority, as opposed to only 21% of Republicans who think it should be a top priority. 57% of Americans say climate change is a major threat to the well-being of the U.S., and that includes 94% of those who call themselves liberal, liberal Democrats, and only 19% of those who call themselves conservative Republicans say that climate change is a major threat to our well-being. And a, just a memorable illustration for me of these differences uh, was a couple years ago when conservative opinion columnist Brett Stevens switched from the more conservative uh, Wall Street Journal to the liberal New York Times and used his very first column at the Times to question the absolute certainty that uh, progressives operate under in terms of <clears throat> climate science. And just a quote from, from that first column he wrote in the New York Times said, so he, he, he kind of pokes holes in, in some of the, the certainty that he sees, but he says, none of this is to deny climate change or the possible uh, severity of its consequences. But ordinary citizens also have a right to be skeptical of an overweening scientism. They know, as all environmentalists should, that history is littered with the human wreckage of scientific errors married to political power. Uh, of course, liberal readers went nuts over this column, calling <laughs> him uh, a climate science denier, saying he was reckless in, in denying the certain danger we all face. Uh, such a strong response, he actually wrote a follow-up column addressing some of the reader questions and concerns, emphasizing that he wasn't denying the science of human-caused climate change, but just recommending caution and humility rather than radical change. Uh, so the first question here is, if, if the, and as I understand it, the science is, is conclusive in, in saying that uh, the planet's warming, it's caused by human activity, uh, especially carbon dioxide emissions uh, from fossil fuels, and that uh, the consequences could be uh, severe and devastating, and, and especially if it gets if the temperature rises over two two degrees Celsius uh, over 
a 50 year period of time. So that's like the goal is to reduce that. So why, why isn't this, if that's what the science is telling us, why isn't this a bipartisan issue that's a, about solutions? Why is the right seem like the right is not convinced that this is actually a serious issue that needs to be addressed in, in one way or the other? Um, it is in part, I think, obtuseness um, by uh, Republicans and uh, conservatives uh, and unwilling to accept uh, what a uh, prudent conclusion would be based upon what we uh, do know. Um, but it's also the excessive certitude um, asserted by the other side. Uh, all of these predictions about the future are based upon uh, climate models, uh, and we are far from being able to duplicate the various interactions that occur in our climate uh, with uh, the degree of accuracy that would allow us to predict uh, within hundreds of a degree uh, what the results are going to be a hundred years from now. Um, and uh, also without leaving room for dramatic technological breakthroughs, which I think will occur with respect, for instance, to solar energy. And the other reason why I think there is a rejection uh, is uh, because to accept the premise uh, is uh, almost to accept the radical agenda. I have personally, based upon what we know and um, the uh, degree of uncertainty that exists uh, in these climate models uh, that we begin with a small carbon tax. Um, the most difficult part of a carbon tax is developing the infrastructure for it. There's a lot of technical and, and policy questions that uh, need to be addressed. Uh, and then uh, that would send a signal to the market to move more aggressively than we already are away from fossil fuels and towards renewables because there's now a price associated with it. Uh, and as the uncertainties um, are reduced, you can raise it up if um, that's uh, considered uh, prudent. Um, so it, it's, it's for those reasons that I think there is a degree of resistance beyond and obtruseness and unwillingness to accept uh, what the science says about the interaction of certain things that we emit uh, with our natural environment. And I would imagine that the reason for the certainty on behalf of the progressives and the kind of like the dire warnings of, you know, destruction and, and that's, that's to sell it, right? To make it, to make to emphasize the urgency of it, to say like almost like, hey, these are the these are the risks that we're facing if we don't act now, and we got to get it done. It, uh, among there, there is a school of thought. A um, couple scientists at, at uh, associated with the Cato Institute um, have been prominent in it that call themselves the lukewarmers, um, who acknowledge the science and believe we shouldn't ignore the effect industrial emissions can have on our climate, we should do something about it. But we also shouldn't be pretending certitude where there is uncertainty uh, or have the hubris of believing that we've created um, computer models that can 
perfectly uh, duplicate the complex interactions that occur uh, and uh, create our our climate. And those people do believe that some of the alarmism among some of the better scientists is uh, to um, create political support for the drastic changes that they believe uh, are necessary. Um, there are those on the right that believe that climate change is uh, just a uh, camouflage uh, to make a transference into a socialist economy that some of these progressive would want, irrespective of whether there was um, climate change. Uh, I, I tend to give people um, greater credit, and if you read, if, if you actually read the scientific documents, um, such as those produced by the UN's um, International Panel on Climate Change, the degree of uncertainty is acknowledged, um, and they express the potential outcomes in terms of ranges and probabilities. Um, so I think when you look at the scientific discussion as opposed to the political discussion, uh, there's um, not as large of a gap uh, between those who think we ought to take radical action as a precautionary measure to um, guard against the worst predicted outcomes and those who think because of the uncertainty in, in the models um, that we ought to proceed more cautiously before we make radical changes to the economy that could have um, very adverse effects. Yeah, because you don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to protect exactly with the chain reaction of certain policy or restricting one element or pushing one element. Brett Stevens used the example of ethanol in one of his examples of, of something that was thought to be helpful that at the time, but turned out uh, not to be so much. Yeah. And, and it seems like to me, just this the, with the polarization now, I feel like some Republicans maybe think that even recognizing the existence of climate change will seem like giving in to the left and even acknowledge like what you said, a, carbon, a carbon tax, which is like, that's a kind of a market-based uh, response to an externality that, Hey, let's, let, let's, this is a problem. Let's tax it, make you pay more for it if you're going to do damage to the economy. But even, I think right now, even to recognize, hey, let's if, if a Republican was to pitch a carbon tax to, as, as, a, as a solution, they would be excoriated for bowing down to the left. No, 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 no question about it. I, I happen to be a um, very much of an optimist um, on this subject because I believe we're headed just from natural market forces to a, a radical decarbonization of our economy um, as improvements in the rate at which solar devices can translate the sun into energy continues uh, and as um, battery technology improves so that you're not limited to using solar power when the sun shines, uh, I mean, solar power has a natural economic advantage over all other um, sources of energy because you don't have to pay for the base resource. Um, and I, I think over the next 20, 30 years, uh, without government doing anything, 
Um, just the market will drive us towards a radically de decarbonized um, economy. A, a small carbon tax would nudge it uh, in that direction. But just as the United States <coughs> leads industrial democracies in reducing carbon emissions because of a market-driven uh, transformation uh, from producing electricity with coal to producing it with natural gas, I think there will be a natural market um, transformation from natural gas to solar. But that's that's that idea is counterintuitive to and and uh, kind of totally counter to the narratives that are being pushed by progressives and and those advocating the Green New Deal who would say that markets are to blame for the environmental damage because. Um, you know, economic development, buildings, construction, uh, demand for electricity usage. You have like corp corporations and, and oil companies developing strong political power to push their, uh, you know, their agenda and, and tweak the laws to advantage themselves, whether, it com whether that means, um, you know, prioritizing personal vehicles over public transportation or just stuff like that, that you know, with, with all these corporations looking out for their own well-being, that they're incentivized to, you know, hurt the environment. So, so they're kind of demonized, and corporations and market forces are, are demonized, and they're trying to be neutralized. But what you're saying is almost the total opposite of that, that it's almost like th those, those forces and those in incentives might be the saving Forest of what? Of oh, I, 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 as I said, I think we will have a natural, rap, uh, radical decarbonization of our uh, economy, um, and um, we have seen a small uh, decarbonization of our economy driven by market forces uh, from um, the transformation from coal-produced electricity to natural gas electricity. Most of the carbon emissions from the United States come from the uh, production of electricity uh, and transportation. Uh, the, and, and they're huge markets. So there's plenty of capital uh, that are looking to uh, either be redeployed by existing providers or um, be overcome by new competitors. There's, there's lots of capital that is being devoted to this issue. And we are seeing steady progress in the efficiency of uh, using solar power to create energy. Um, we haven't had, we've had some breakthroughs in terms of battery technology. Um, I think those are yet to come. But um, if someone can produce electricity cheaper uh, than um, our fossil fuel sources, uh, the market is going to go to that. And, and if we can power cars and, and our vehicles uh, with electricity that's produced clean, cheaper than we can with gasoline, it will happen. But, I mean, the, the, the fossil fuel companies are not going to go down without a fight. I mean, isn't, is, aren't there ways that they will lobby and use their political power to stifle those upstart renewable energy? The coal companies haven't been able to prevent the transformation to natural gas, which is um, produced by a different set of people. The, the creative destruction in the economy has not been abated. If, if you look at 
our big corporations today, uh, relatively few of them were around 30, 40 years ago. And the companies that were big 30, 40 years ago are, to a very large degree, no longer around, are no longer uh, dominant in, in their field. So, um, and and there, as I said, there's a lot of money to be made in making things go. And a lot of capital is being plowed into uh, improving um, solar as the option for, for doing that. Now, that won't be the answer every place, but it can be the answer a lot of places. Um, and natural gas is, compared to coal, a much cleaner um, source of energy. So it is even, <clears throat> from that perspective, it is it even worth it for Republicans to, to try to win the issue or try to get involved in the issue at all, just from a political well, standpoint? I, to, I, I believe uh, neglecting to acknowledge that this is an issue that needs to be addressed and that there is a problem with um, industrial emissions and it, their interaction uh, with our natural climate um, takes Republican solutions or market-based solutions sort of off the table. Um, and so for those that accept uh, the need for action, the only agenda that's left is Bernie Sanders's. Uh, and I think that is um, both a factual and strategic mistake. It's wrong to ignore uh, climate change. Uh, it, and, and, it, and one of the advantages of a small carbon tax is if I prove excessively optimistic and we don't have this natural uh, transformation to a uh, less carbon-intensive economy, um, the carbon tax can be ratcheted up uh, to nudge things along uh, more quickly. Uh, but if Republicans are saying um, it's spinach and I won't eat it, I, I, the only agenda that's left that's proffered to the American people uh, is Bernie Sanders's complete radical transformation abruptly of the U.S. economy and the dislocations that that will cause. The other complicating factor here is that it's a global problem, and the United States isn't the only country that contributes to global warming. So, and Trump brought us out of the Paris Climate Agreement, which is another uh, complaint of uh, the, the progressives, what what was uh, do you think that was a mistake pulling out of the the Paris Accord? Uh, should we get back into the Paris Accord? Was that is that a good thing for 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 countries to team up and make a make a pledge to each other to get below a certain level of carbon emissions by a it, certain date? It, it, it was an act of political vanity by all the world's leaders getting together and pledging to each other that they're going to do something about uh, climate change. But in the meantime, the United States, which withdrawn, has done more than other industrialized democracies to reduce carbon emissions because of being responsive to, to market forces. So I, I don't think it was a mistake to uh, withdraw because that is an entity that's looking for top-down government solutions, even though the countries are unwilling to implement them. And I'm also optimistic on this score. There's, there's a lot of the world that remains um, without electricity and without access to energy generally. 
if the kind of improvements that I'm anticipating in solar take place, uh, then uh, those countries can electrify um, using renewable power. They, they don't have to build coal power plants. Um, so um, we, the assumption that's built into a lot of this discussion is that they're, we're locked into today's technologies. And so we've got to choose which of today's technologies at today's prices uh, can save the planet from climate change. Uh, and I don't think you can look over the last 100 years. I mean, we're projecting 100 years in the future. If you look at, the, at where we were in um, 1919 and the technologies that were available then and, and what's happened between then and now and think that we're going to make no such breakthroughs and progress in the future. And to me, it's just a natural market force driven solar energy is going to dominate. I don't know when, um, but it's going to dominate. And, and, and my guess is it will dominate much quicker than you can get governments around the world to agree to radical changes in their economy and get developing countries to agree to develop more slowly than mm. potentially they could. Yeah. One more issue I want to talk about is uh, you're kind of preaching the gospel of the markets here and, and solving these big, big problems. And, and markets are under attack, not just from the left, but there's also a, an emerging uh, thought school on the right that is questioning uh, what, what you're what you're selling there, what classical uh, or kind of original conservatism and classical liberalism was about, which is the power of, of freedom and free markets. And, and Marco Rubio is the latest uh, to kind of advocate for this, what he calls common good capitalism. And a quote from, he gave a speech recently and wrote a, wrote a piece and his, just a, a quick quote from his piece in the, in the National Review says, um, common good capitalism uh, also means recognizing that what the market determines is most efficient may not be the best uh, for America. Um, he advocates that corporate, you know, corporate has some responsibility for the common good, um, for the workers, creating a um, you know a healthy society, and recognizing that what's good for the shareholders or the or the corporation might not be the best thing for uh, the community or the country. And he want, want just one example of something specific that he advocates is he, he, he said that corporate, buy, corporate stock buybacks um, might be the most, uh, the biggest incentive for a company to do, uh, but it doesn't, doesn't benefit the workers. Uh, and he thinks that uh, maybe offering some, ta some tax reduction to corporations making decisions on like investing in their workers or expanding uh, pro-social pro Things, <laughs> so um, well, what, what's what's your response from 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 that push from conservatives, people on the right that are uh, that are now questioning? Uh, well, well, let me begin with stock buybacks um, because uh, he is um, is uh, not following through the economic effects of what a stock buyback does. Um, and they are one of the most productive and 
um, small d democratic forces uh, in our financial markets. So a corporation makes a lot of money. It doesn't really have useful things that it thinks it can do with it. It hasn't identified a new market it wants to go into. It doesn't believe that investments in its existing um, market will do much better. Now, this is an unnatural decision by <laughs> corporate managers who always want to empire build. So it's not like there's the first incentive is to keep it and to put it to use yourself. But if they distribute it to shareholders, then the money gets redeployed. And it gets redeployed in the things that the investors uh, believe will produce better returns, uh, new markets, new businesses, new services, um, than the company that distributed it. So it, it, it isn't... The money doesn't disappear. It doesn't go into a um, mattress. So companies, it's, it's redeployed by the shareholders in ways that are more productive and efficient for the overall economy. Um, on the on the general belief that politicians or bureaucrats can allocate resources more efficiently and uh, with greater good for more people uh, than markets aggregating uh, hundreds of millions of decisions uh, on a daily, monthly, <laughs> annual basis has just always been proved false. It's, it's what um, Hayek called the fatal conceit uh, that uh, Politicians and bureaucrats can allocate capital more efficiently than markets. And, and buybacks, which are also a source of significant criticism on the left, is a perfect illustration of that because it's a very efficient way to redeploy capital in more efficient ways. So that specific example, a company is uh, basically causing their, the price of their stocks to go up by, by buying them back, which gives kickbacks to their well, no, they, they make a profit. Uh -huh. So there's a variety of things they can do with that profit. They can reinvest it in their business. They can distribute it as dividends uh, to um, their shareholders. Or they can buy back stock. Um, when they buy back stock, they pay money for that. They're, they're, okay, so they're buying it back from people who have bought their stock. They're yeah. saying, oh, we're going to buy that back. And, so we're, we're, and you're saying the people that... Uh, the people that sell it to them are are, are, are going to redeploy the re capital, redistributing their their money into something else. So, right. so a new a new business or or can you can and, and, and it makes no sense to tell. I mean, these are mostly big companies uh, to say you can't do that. You know, you keep it even though you don't think you can make it to productive use. Don't give it back to people to redeploy uh, for new ideas, new businesses. New innovations. So incentivizing this or that is, in your mind, not going to be put the, the, to the, as... The, the, we, the notion that, that um, uh, Rubio can outguess and be smarter than um, people who are investing their own capital in terms of what's most productive and efficient is, as I said, a version of Hayek's The Fatal Conceit. But I think he's saying that... What what if he has uh, 
more inclined to to favor the public interest, the public good. Do you, do you think there's any examples of a, of a, of a business uh, doing something, making decisions, operating in a way that is harmful to the well-being of the communities that they're a part of or uh, the well-being of the country as a whole? If, if they have monopoly power or if they're granted government favoritism, um, uh, then uh, markets are distorted and the public is not served. Uh, if you have a company that's exploiting its customers, it's exploiting its employees, they're going to lose customers to competitors. They're going to lose uh, workers to competitors. Um, we've just never have had an example of where politicians and bureaucrats can more efficiently and effectively allocate capital um, than markets. So last question on this topic. Um, even if you don't agree with this idea of common good capitalism, um, it's obviously, you know, this populism is gaining traction on both the left and the right. Um, and, and among big corporations. And, you, you had the business roundtable adopt a set of principles. It's very common to what Marco Rubio is saying and, and um, sort of falls into... Uh, what uh, Elizabeth Warren has proposed in terms of corporate reform. Do you think, well, first of all, why, why do you think that's happening? And do you think it's, do you think Marco Rubio is playing a winning hand politically by going in this direction? It, it may be a winning hand in the short term, uh, but in the long term, it doesn't work. I mean, we, we, we see this form of, uh, political economy in Western Europe. It's successful. I mean, Western Europe has a very high standard of living. Um, but it's sluggish and stagnant. It poorly serves young workers uh, who generally in Europe face very high unemployment rates. Uh, it's an inferior model to ours. Uh, and uh, we're not going to do it better than the Western Europeans do. So it's, it's not... It wouldn't be the, the end of a materialistically well-off United States, but it would be a United States that doesn't grow uh, as rapidly as it could, as uh, dynamically as it could, and as inclusively as it could. Well, where, do you think this, where do you think this is coming from? Why, if everything is going all dandy with all these markets and everyone's like, why, why is, why, what is causing this populism and this push on both the right and the left and with corporations to reject these principles that are working so well for us? Uh, well, working better than the alternatives, but um, everyone, there's a natural tendency to believe uh, that central planning can work um, or that politicians can nudge things in the right direction by this preference or, or that preference. Uh, a belief in the invisible hand is more difficult. Um, but uh, I think over the course of time, uh, it's been uh, proved better. Um, if you are worried about the effects, the social effects of dynamic market capitalism, to me, and we've had this discussion in the past, you ought to be looking at the uh, social safety net programs. 
uh, for government to provide assistance uh, to those um, that um, struggle to participate, are displaced uh, by the dynamism, uh, and uh, empower them to then re-enter the dynamic economy, rather than constrain the things that make the economy dynamic and uh, create the opportunities for the future. Do you think that uh, this the ability for corporations to spend basically unlimited amount of money in, in political elections, uh, do you think that alters this free uh, or the uh, invisible hand idea? Isn't, isn't there an active push on, on behalf of big corporations uh, being made on the, on the political system? Well, to the extent they, they seek governmental preferences, um, yeah. Um, but uh, I don't think you can look at how demonized corporations are being in this political cycle and, and uh, conclude uh, that um, they're controlling our, our right, politics. Right. And government regulation of business has steadily advanced over, over time. To a certain extent, businesses like it. I mean, Adam Smith said that, that the last defenders wasn't known as capitalism at that time, but the last true defenders of pure capitalism <laughs> are, are, are not businessmen, um, that, that they prefer preferences and controlled markets. Um, so... Um, and but when you have big government, um, big business will try to use big government to protect its 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 markets. Um, the answer is market freedom, uh, not a false belief that suddenly we can change things and and government can do the allocation of at least capital better. Well, let's finish here with the sports question. Tiger Woods recently won his 82nd tournament, tied for first with all-time wins on uh, on the PGA Tour, Sam Snead. Would you call him the greatest golfer of all time, or were his, who was your top three golfers of all time? Well, it would be Woods. Um, actually, I'd have to go four. I'm sorry. <laughs> it, it would be Woods, Nicholas, um, Hogan, uh, and uh, Byron Nelson. Now Nelson Nelson over Palmer. N Nelson retired um, at a very young age and at the height of his efficiency. But he won eleven tournaments in a row. Um, that's an awfully tough mark to beat. Thanks everyone for listening. This has been the Political Notebook podcast. You can subscribe to us on any podcasting app, Stitcher, uh, Apple, Overcast, Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcast. Thank you.